Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to spend most of our time together. I saw something fascinating the other day. A friend of mine has a dog. The dog got sick. And on the bottle of medication that the veterinarian prescribed was this warning. Caution may cause drowsiness. Do not take if driving. <laughs> and maybe in your life you've seen occasionally one of those warning signs, right? Uh, we looked at a stroller one time, Laura and I did, when Annabelle was very young. Caution, remove child before folding. A friend of mine bought a jet ski. Uh, caution, never use match or open flame to check fuel level. And you think, why in the world would we ever need to make such warnings apparent? And then uh, I remembered when I was a freshman in college, I had a, a friend, and uh, her name was Carrie, and we passing each other on the sidewalk one day, and uh, she was holding her hip like this. And I thought, well, what in the world has happened? Carrie, are you all right? I don't want to talk about it. Oh, okay. So uh, maybe 100 yards down the sidewalk, I saw her roommate, Carrie, just limping around. What happened? Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, she, uh, the other night, put on a pair of those cargo pants. And, you know, for like from 99 to 2004, everybody had to wear cargo pants. And, so, and it had the flap there on the pocket. And, and it was all kinds of scrunched up. And she decided that she needed to iron the flap on the pocket. And instead of, uh, you know, putting it on the ironing board, just while she was right there, full hot iron just scorched uh, the side. Um, and so when you pick up an iron in the store at some point in your life and it has a little tag, uh, do not wear clothes while ironing, you know that there is an actual reason why that warning exists. Because of our friend Carrie and others, I'm sure, who didn't have time to put the cargo pants on the ironing board. Hebrews chapter 2 is a warning. Uh, as we have observed from uh, our uh, new study here in the book of Hebrews already, that the author, uh, who all righteous people know to be Barnabas, um, is uh, writing this letter, and uh, this is his pattern in writing this letter. He writes in these dense theological terms, and then he follows it up with very practical language about how to live out the Christian life. And more often than not, the way that he writes these great practical applications of the faith is he writes them with the deep hue of warning. There are five such warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 2 is the first of the five that we'll see over the next couple of months as we study this letter to the Hebrews. Of course, we've seen the pattern. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is greater than all of the angels. Of all the things that God has created, there was to the ancient Near Eastern world nothing as bright or glorious or holy as angels. Of all the created stuff, they seemed the greatest. And we know from reading Colossians that some of the people had even started worshiping angels. And the author of Hebrews comes in and, no, 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 remember, Jesus is not higher than the angels on the created spectrum of all the things that have been made. Jesus himself is the creator. The angels were made by Christ. Jesus is greater than any created thing because he made them and sustains them by his power and his divine might. And now we're following that up with a warning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not terribly long. And then we're going to make some observations about what we find there. 
because the author is not only warning the people, don't turn back, but he's anticipating some of the arguments that they're going to make to justify turning back. And they're going to make two of those arguments. So the first part, there's a warning, don't turn back. And then the first argument comes, but he's so human. Jesus is so human. Can we really worship someone who's so thoroughly human? And we'll find the author's answer. And then they come back and say, well, you know, it's not just that he's so human, but he suffers so much. Can someone who suffers so much really be worthy of worship? This is how we see this play out in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You can see the contrast is already being played out here. There was a covenant that was mediated by angels. We see that play out in Deuteronomy 32. They brought the Mosaic covenant. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. But Christ, the maker of the angels, mediates a new covenant. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is from Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was, this is the second time we find this reiterated here in Hebrews chapter 2, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by all things whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Or we might extrapolate here brothers and sisters saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps us, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, guide us through Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Ground our hearts in love for you and in obedience to your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've seen already the author of Hebrews has a pattern. First he talks theology, and then he talks practically about how that's lived out. And here we have in the very first few verses of Hebrews chapter 2, the first practical section. Not neglecting your salvation. This is a warning. He begins the first of the five warnings of Hebrews, all which share the same general message. Don't turn back to the stifling legalism of Judaism and the Mosaic Covenant. You remember that this letter is written to a group of people who are intensely familiar with the Old Testament, who know the Old Covenant inside and out. Were they all Jewish converts? Maybe not. But I suspect that many of them were. And that's why we have handed down through history the name of this book. It's the book to the Hebrews, people who understood what it meant to offer sacrifices for their sins, to go to the synagogue or the temple and to hear the law read, that the covenant that they felt as though they were most intensely identified with was a covenant of retribution. Do the good things, get the blessings, do the bad things, and receive the curses of the Almighty and Holy God. This is what they knew, and it was exhausting because in the entire duration of when the Mosaic Covenant was active there were exactly zero men and zero women and zero children who fulfilled that law in perfection uh, in fact Paul goes to really extreme lengths in Romans and Galatians to make that very point if you want to live under the law you can choose to do so that's your option but by the way, if you choose that option, you have to live in absolute perfection. You must not do any of the things it tells you not to do. None. Zero. And you must fulfill positively all of the things it does tell you to do. And nobody's ever done that before. And so you'll be stuck in this cycle of recognizing your sin and offering sacrifices that cannot really take away the penalty for your sin. All it is is a reminder day after day and generation after generation for more than a thousand years you are broken you are broken, you are broken, you are broken and you cannot fix yourself. But it was familiar. It's what we knew. It's what our mothers and fathers did and their mothers and fathers did. And maybe the appeal of a system like that was that we slightly overestimated how well we were doing in keeping the law. We had construed for ourselves barrier laws that kept us from violating the ones in the middle. If it was against the law to do any sort of, well, we have things to keep us from that. We're actually very holy people. Now, anyone who's read the New Testament knows that the first argument that the New Testament authors make, the apostles make, is, hey, you're not nearly so good at that as you think you are. And this is the reason why the author of Hebrews comes out swinging in chapter 2. Don't go back. Don't 
neglect what he calls, and I love this, so great a salvation. Don't you know that you have this option available to you? Sure, you could live under the old covenant. It's going to be miserable. But this new covenant, a covenant grounded in grace, a covenant that says you don't need to be perfect. Christ was perfect. You don't need to be sinless. Christ was sinless. All of your sins piled on him at the cross and at his crucifixion and his resurrection, the proof that they have been dealt with, the wrath of God stored up against all sinful humanity, reconciled in a single person, the God-man, and all of his righteousness. He never succumbed to temptation. He always fulfilled the law in perfection. All of that righteousness now accrued to your account. You don't need to be perfect. You need only to follow in faith the one person in history who was. Isn't that so much better? Don't you understand? It's not a chastising tone that emerges here in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 2. It's a plea. Don't you know? The extreme lengths to which God has gone to prove to you that this is far superior. The terms of the covenant are better. The covenant itself is better. The mediator of the covenant is better. The sacrifices that are being offered, better. One sacrifice for all time, better. Don't go back. I know that's familiar. I know there's, even in the misery of living under the terror of God, there's something comfortable about going back to what you know. But what we have in Jesus Christ is so much better. He offers three reasons why. Uh, to, to prove here that it is God going to these extreme lengths to prove that this is better, why you should stay. Um, he uh, says here, uh, starting in verse 2, for since the message uh, declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that's the old covenant, uh, covenant of retribution. Now we have this new covenant, verse 3, covenant of grace. How shall we escape how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared at first by the Lord. Two, it was attested to us by those who heard. Three, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here are the three proofs that God is intent on you embracing the new covenant. First, he brings it himself. It's the Lord who has mediated this covenant to you. Uh, you remember uh, a couple of years ago, there was a massive distress in the state of Hawaii. Tens of thousands of people received a text message from the government. It co-opted their phones, uh, declaring that nuclear uh, rain was imminent. Um, somebody in a back room somewhere pushed the wrong button. Um, this is the person who fired fastest in history, Right? <laughs> This guy did not survive the end of that work day. Accidentally pushed him and sent this text message out, and there was absolute pandemonium all across the state of Hawaii. Why? Because the source of that message was deemed reliable. If I see a guy out on the street corner, like down there where 301 and the 64 bypass meet, and he's got a sign, and he says the end is near, I think, well, I'm dispensational. That's at least a possibility, but I think probably this guy's a kook, right? <laughs> Your poster board and the barbecue sauce from the can of sauce that you ate this morning that you've penciled this out on is not a huge authoritative message to me. 
But if the federal government co-ops the phone lines and tells me there is a nuclear threat imminent, get under your desk and pray for the best. I take that in great intensity because of the source, the authority that's imbued within the one who sent the message. This is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. This message is reliable. Of course, we know that the Lord wants you to embrace the new covenant, not because he sent it with angels or prophets or in fact, he spoke to us in those ways in the former days, but he himself now has brought this message. Christ, the God-man, has come to earth to face you eye to eye and tell you this is the better way. The second thing he says is it's confirmed by eyewitnesses, all of those who followed Christ. They're all here together. They're telling you the same thing that I'm arguing with you here in Hebrews chapter 2. They have all seen. Um, I remember vividly one of my favorite memories from second grade. Uh, we were in a very small Christian school, and it was very serious. And um, in the little class that we were in, we had a teacher named Mrs. Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. And I didn't like her, and she didn't particularly care for me. And so as an act of defiance, I would turn in all of my papers with the E just crossed out. And I thought I was very, very clever, right? Um, which I obviously wasn't. Uh, but there was almost no transgression that you could do that was more an offense to her sensibilities than when we had prayer time if your eyes were open. This was the big no-no. And so uh, I'm in class one day, and, and we prayed for, and my second grade memory is fuzzy, but I'm going to say seven hours. <laughs> and um, I'm blinking, and I'm doing one of these things here, right, my wonky eyelashes. And uh, we closed she closed us in prayer and there was uh, two Chris's in the classroom the other Chris from across the room goes Chris Abner had his eyes open during the prayer and uh, I was mortified because it didn't occur to me that there was only one way that he could know that I had my eyes open and this is what the teacher realized and she goes how uh, do you know that uh, he had his eyes open I saw him and it dawned on everyone else in the class except uh, the other Chris, right, Chris number two, uh, that what she was leading toward. And she goes, you saw him how? With my own eyes I saw him. Are you sure? Positive. Would you testify that you stared at him down in the, uh-huh, yeah, I would be willing to sign my name in the, and then it hit. And his face turned red. And he was absolutely mortified. And there was eyewitness testimony, not only against me, but against himself. He incriminated himself. Christ has brought the new covenant down. It is superior. Cling to it. It's so important that he didn't entrust the message to prophets or angels, but he in his own body comes to deliver the message and everyone saw it. They all had their eyes open. And if that weren't enough, then we find that there were, and I love the way that the author of Hebrews describes it here because he doesn't just say, and, and there were signs. But he goes, there were signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit distributed uh, amongst the people. Some of you I know are in Bible study fellowship and you've been studying the book of Acts and you're wondering why in the world do we have all of these miraculous things happening in the early chapters of the book of Acts. In fact, some of you may be asking more broadly, why do we have all of these incredible sign gifts that are littered throughout the New Testament and the early church? People are speaking in tongues. People are dying and being raised back to life by the apostles. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. What's the point of all of those things? 
Well, the point is, at least in part, proof that God is doing all of these wondrous works to get your attention, to prove that the new covenant is far superior than the old, that the new sacrifice is far greater than all the countless ones offered before him, and that the Christ is the greatest high priest the Jews have ever known. The covenant is better. Don't turn back. That's the argument from these first few verses. Well, then someone in the back, somebody uh, smug who is feeling disquieted about this whole argument says, well, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I've got a question. Uh, okay, signs and wonders given by God, etc., but I'm deeply, deeply disturbed by the fact that the Christ who brings this message, who descends from heaven, he looks like me. I wanted a warrior king. I wanted someone who would come down on the white horse and bolts of lightning and absolutely decimate the Romans and bring this message by great glorious trumpet and angels and throngs of mighty heavenly creatures. That's what I really wanted. And instead, I got a Jewish man who looked like me and ate and drank like me and sometimes his back hurt in the morning and and his feet got dirty. Do you really mean to tell me that someone so thoroughly human is really greater than all the angels? That his message is greater than the one the angels brought us? That the new covenant is better than the old covenant? And this is exactly what the author says, of course, of course. And this is our big idea for the morning. And if you had to draw a big idea out of Hebrews chapter 2, I think it's this. Jesus' humanity doesn't detract from his superiority. It proves it. That Jesus, fully God, with all the powers and the authority of the triune God invested within himself, takes on human flesh. It doesn't disprove that he's worthy of worship. In fact, the New Testament makes the argument it's the basis for his worthiness for worship. And so he says in verse 5, anticipating this argument, oh yes, I understand. What is man that you are mindful of him? Isn't that a good question? Can't you see some Jewish person asking the question, all right, we, we, we followed Moses, I understand that God is holy, and, and yet here we have Jesus and he's a man. Why in the world are you so concerned with humankind? Or the son of man that you care for him, for you made him for a little while lower than the angels. We see that twice. That, that's a keen observation from somebody who's tempted to turn back. I, I see that you're telling me that Jesus is higher than the angels, but he's human, and aren't humans lower than the angels? You've told me that he's better, that his message is better, but obviously he, he doesn't look nearly as glorious as Michael or Gabriel or any of the angelic hosts. Don't we understand that on the great rung of all the things that exist in the universe, that God is number one and angels are number two and humans maybe way down here, right? And people who root for the University of Michigan, maybe just a little bit lower right down there. What does it mean that God invests so much attention into humanity? Now, this is an argument that's going to get teased out in a few different ways in the book of Hebrews, but we know that of all the things that God has made, 
of all the majestic oceans and the mountains that seem far beyond the grandeur that our eyes can conceive. That of all the things that fly through the air and swim through the sea, of all the wonders of the galaxy, none of them are image bearers of God except for human beings. Not even the angels, not even the angels bear the image of God, only humankind. And the argument that Hebrews is going to make and the New Testament is going to make is this. In this form, you and I, just like we are now, we appear lower than the angels. We sin. And the angels who followed after God after the great war in heaven, they do not sin. They're holy. And so they're allowed to be in God's holy presence. And not only that, but we suffer. We suffer, and, and the angels apparently do not suffer. We die, the angels don't die. We can be wounded mortally, and the angels are not. They're eternal beings now. And so you're making this argument to me that here is this Jesus, but, but he was tempted. He was tempted, and, and also he suffered. And the author of Hebrews is making the point that of this Christ, this is what we learn from passages like Psalm chapter 8, this messianic psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him for a little while, which is maybe the most important prepositional phrase in the entirety of the chapter, for a little while lower than the angels. Because he was just like us. He was tempted to sin, and he suffered a great deal. And he suffered even to the point of death death on a cross. And if you're writing little cross-references in your Bibles, if you're one of those heathens that writes in there, just go ahead and write Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses right there. This is exactly what Paul talks about. Philippians chapter 2. But then he turns it there in the middle of verse 7. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And right there in those verses, he's alluding to two different humanities. Two different ways of being human. Now, look, I know I'm losing some of the people in the room, but I need you to hold on here because this is not only intensely important for you understanding the book of Hebrews, this is important for you to be able to look in the mirror and know who you are when you get up in the morning. There is who we are after the fall. Adam eats the fruit, he's kicked out of the garden. He will now, because of his sin and rebellion, suffer and ultimately die. He is cut off from the holy presence of God. And ever since then, he as our federal head has represented a group of people who have done exactly the same. We've lived in the same rebellion. We've pursued many of the same sins. And there is a great track record for all men and women in history of dying and suffering along the way. That's one way of being human. But there was another way. Before the fall, when we lived in a garden, and God in the cool of the evening came and tabernacled among his people, and there is coming a day when Christ will return, and he will call us up to him. And though we have been declared righteous, and though he is making us righteous, we never quite get all the way there until he gives us new bodies, glorified bodies. 
that makes us all the way 100% across the finish line holy. And then he tabernacles with us again. And in that reign of Christ, that thousand years and everything beyond, there is no suffering. There is no death. There is no temptation and therefore no sin. It is a holy, flawless state for those who have believed and have been transformed into the likeness of Christ. Such that he says later in the chapter that it's not as though we are estranged from God, but we are literally with this Christ, brothers and sisters invited equally to the table of the Father. There is the way of being human that we are now, but there is an old and ancient way that is coming again and God will teach us the new way of being a human when he redeems us fully in glorified bodies. So in the first couple of verses, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him for you made him for a little while lower than the angels? We get that, right? If I saw a great holy angel, I think I would feel a little bit lower than that angel as well. I suffer, he doesn't. I sin, he doesn't. In Christ fully man was tempted to sin tempted but did not succumb and suffered and ultimately died because he didn't sin because he died and rose again you've crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection to his feet um, it's important as you continue to work through all of the implications of that in Hebrews chapter 2 and, and we could go on about the theology contained within this there's not one sermon, but innumerable that we could pursue in this chapter. But practically speaking, it's important that when you lay your head on your pillow tonight that you understand, and I think some of us really struggle with this, that we have the image of God as all stick and no carrot. That the way that we talk about the faith is almost exclusively a description born in deprivation. Preachers get up, and I know that I'm guilty of this, in, in describing the faith as almost exclusively that which we give up. We give up our agendas. We give up our sin. We give up ourselves. We give up reading passages where Jesus is explicit, and all of these things are true, that when Jesus Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says he bids him come and die, that if you're not willing to leave your father and your mother, that you're not worthy to follow him, that the faith is predominantly, nearly exclusively one of all the things that we lose to follow him, to the point where he says even you must lose your life and bear your cross and follow him. And all of those things are true. But we have to be careful not only to talk about what it is that we give up, but also what we gain. When Jesus Christ comes in flesh and dies for your sin and rises again, he brings you new life. When you look in the mirror in the morning and you have spent a day or a week or a season suffering and, and sinning in spite of yourself, you, you want to do the... And, and you just do not have initial to yourself the willpower to, and you're crying out with God to help you, be reminded, my identity is no longer the one who sins cut off from God, but is now 
the one who sinned has been reckoned with by God fully and perfectly. For Christ himself gives up his flesh so that one day I might be more human than I have ever been. What greater investment could be made in the universe to prove God's love for you than the body of Jesus Christ? I am loved. I am forgiven. I am a part of the plan of God, and he will make me worthy to be with him forever. I am on that trajectory. And I'm encouraged on the hardest days to look in the mirror and be reminded of who I really am in Christ. I am not worthy. In Christ, I am the sibling of Jesus. Right? Worthy to stand in the presence of God. Now, that's the first objection. The second objection is this. All right, it's not just that Jesus is human. We, we understand this. All right, too, humans. I, I guess I can deal with that. But he suffers so much. Starting there in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. And I hope you appreciate the poetic beauty of what he's writing here. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through exaltation. Right? Perfect through the triumphal emergence into the world created by his own sovereign majesty. No. He was made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It was fitting that he for whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. I will put my trust in him. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it's not angels that he helps, but it's us that he helps. Three arguments there, just briefly. If the question is, can one who suffered so badly as human, who looks so weak, who looks so abused, can he really be worthy of following? Is, is he really worthy of our worship? Can we really trust that he has the will and the power to bring us a new covenant? He's just so frail, like you and me. He suffers so much, he died. How can you worship the God-man who even some in this assembly now several years after the crucifixion saw with their own eyes what happened there at Golgotha? And the author of Hebrews says, oh, this is what's absolutely fascinating. It's not that his humanity is disregarded. It's not as though we just kind of sweep that under the rug when we talk about his worthiness. His humanity is essential to the argument that he is worthy of worship. His humanity is key in the argument that you should embrace the new covenant 
And he gives you three reasons why. First, Jesus suffered in order to identify with humanity. He suffered to identify with humanity, right? He, like us, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Behold, I am the children God has given me. I, uh, a friend in college lost his father. And here's the glue that holds their family together. And a friend of ours went to them and said, I know exactly what you're going through. You, you see, we had this dog, and my dog died. And, and I just know, it's just really hard, huh? I'm sorry, what? Well, you, you don't understand. I was really close to that dog. Do you have any idea what you're saying? You have no idea what I'm going through. It would be easy for you when you pray to tilt your face toward heaven and go, you have no idea what I'm going through. And for Christ to respond and go, I know everything you're going through. You've been tempted, so was I. You have suffered, so have I. And I have died. I have died that you might be resurrected. Secondly, Jesus suffered in order to destroy the devil and deliver believers from fear and death. He talks about it in terms of slavery. That here were a people not just perturbed by sin, not just tempted in abstract ways. He calls it slavery. You were enslaved. You were in bondage. You were beholden to a master dark and evil in the world whose power seemed insurmountable in your life and Christ comes and what seems ironic to the world but wise to us by his death by dying has conquered the power of sin and death you wonder and, and I I ponder this occasionally if in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion, Satan doesn't think for just a brief moment that he has been absolutely victorious, if this isn't the pinnacle of his work and wiles in the world, only to discover that when the tomb is empty, that everything that he has striven for for millennia has been eaten up by the resurrected Christ. I don't fear death. My Savior lives again, and by his resurrection, I get resurrected life. So I'm not afraid of the one who has power over death. My Savior champions life and hands it freely to all who believe. Uh, I'm not very good at chess. In fact, I'm miserable at chess. You have to have um, intelligence <laughs> and patience. And I don't have very much of either, so I find chess tedious. But I'm watching a show on television. It's about Gary Kasparov and his famous uh, chess grandmaster, and he's playing somebody else. And this is uh, several decades ago. And he's playing in this tournament against um, a, a Russian foe who is considered by many behind the Iron Curtain to be the greatest in the world. And uh, in a match that lasted literally for days, uh, about 24 hours before the end of the match, they're playing, and Gary Kasparov smiles at the table. It's small. It's very faint. It's just a... Just and that's it. And the next day, uh, Kasparov wins. 
And someone who uh, caught that, some intrepid reporter who found that just brief smile, says, I, I noticed about a day ago that you smiled. What was that about? And he goes, oh, well, I knew in that moment that I was only about 60 or 70 moves away from winning. Uh, yes, there were many more moves that had to be made, but by that point, the game was over. I knew exactly how checkmate was going to be achieved. That's apparently how it works with Jesus and Satan in the world today. There's an awful lot of moves that the devil can make, but the outcome has been secured by the resurrected Christ. He's a defeated foe. He can move all of the pawns and rooks that are under his control, and it's ultimately meaningless because he's a defeated foe. And the imagery that the author of Hebrews uses more often than any other of speaking of the enemy, not only were we in bondage enslaved and now freed by him, but now he will be enslaved as a enemy who has been made a footstool for the feet of the King Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. This is why sometimes um, C.S. Lewis used to say often that the greatest mistake when we talk about the devil is that we don't give him enough credit and the second is very much like it, which is maybe we give him too much. And so uh, in, in an affront to the devil, he always referred to him in personal conversation as smutty face. He didn't want the devil to think that we had too high of an opinion of him. This is my great image. And if we were looking for a single iconic image of uh, spiritual warfare in the New Testament, it would be of an ottoman. You have one of those chairs and it's your little padded square thing and you prop your feet up on it. Satan is the great Ottoman of history. <laughs> he has, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, been made a footstool for the feet of the king. Thirdly, Jesus suffered in order to be qualified to serve as the believer's merciful high priest. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful as high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, I taught tennis lessons for a long time. And uh, at the facility that I worked in our public parks, we had a camp there one time and, and we just hosted. We didn't do uh, any teaching or anything. They had their own instructor. And for the life of me, I wish I could remember the guy's name. But this is... Um, right about the time I was getting ready to graduate college, so 2004, 2005. And it was a tennis clinic for children who were disabled. Some were in chairs, uh, some had prosthetic limbs. And uh, the guy who was running the camp was kind of a grizzled sort of looking dude, a little bit tougher than I, I thought maybe he should have been. And there were times when he really eased off the kids and there were times when he really pushed them to do things that they were uncomfortable to do. And my coworker and I who were just sitting there in the pro shop kind of staffing the, the, the office, um, we're a little disoriented by that. You know, where does this guy get off, you know, pushing the kids? And so my buddy goes out there, and, and he just kind of lays into them very gently when they're like, hey, man, what's going on? I mean, you're really pushing a lot of buttons, and, and it escalated a little bit, and finally my buddy, where do you get off being so? And the guy had his sweatpants on, and he lifted them both up, and from the knee down, he had prosthetic legs, both legs. He said, I was sent to Afghanistan and a roadside deal went off and, and I lost both my legs. And I know for many of these kids exactly what it feels like to not feel whole and to have to learn how to live life again. And some of them need extra compassion and some of them need to be pushed a little bit. 
to realize what they're actually capable of doing. And I'm here for them because I know. Does Jesus know? Does he know what your days are like? Does he know what you're facing? Does he know how hard it is? That this life is beautiful and overwhelming and some days an insurmountable battle where you gain one step and lose five. And the resounding answer from Hebrews 2 is, of course he knows. And as he does the work of high priest, mediating between us and the Father, every memory, every time he was laid down on the hard earth and had to get back up again, is immediate in his heart and in his mind as he advocates for you. He is a faithful and merciful high priest. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, and you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there for you. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the humanity of Jesus Christ, the one who suffers, the one who fights, the one who dies, and in the great, the great irony of history, by his suffering, by his death, by his frailty, by his humanity, earns the name which is above every other name. This is how he frames that work of Christ in taking on human flesh. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we imitate God, right? How, how do we actually do that? Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's impossible to read. It is impossible, impossible to work through a passage like Hebrews chapter 2 and not walk away with the overwhelming objective of living like Christ. A life that is loving and proves itself by sacrifice. You want to love someone well, you might have to give something up to do it. You might have to give up wealth or comfort or your agenda, what you want to do. You might have to lay down your rights and what you have earned you might have to do something that is entirely incoherent to the world, and it may cost you a great deal financially or physically or emotionally, but this is how we love the world like Christ. I'm sure many of you saw the story this week of a young woman, a police officer, who nearly a year ago now, after a very long shift at work, got home to her apartment building and parked her car, got through the hallway to what she thought was her apartment door, only to find the door was slightly ajar and there was a man inside, a man named Dawson Jean. And she didn't realize that she had got off on the wrong floor, that she had parked on the wrong level of the parking garage, thought that there was an intruder in her apartment, which had the same layout. And as a police officer, armed, shot him, and he died. And this week, she was convicted of murder. 
and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And as incomprehensible as that entire scenario was, there was nothing that was quite as shocking as after the guilty verdict had already been rendered, Rotham's brother got up to the stand and said, I'd love to address this woman who murdered my brother. And he said the most extraordinary thing. He said, I love you. And Christ loves you. And I forgive you. And you should give your life to Christ. This is exactly what my brother would want for you. Do you know what it cost that man to say those things? He had, by worldly wisdom, earned the right to hate that woman forever. But being so loved himself by a God who is willing to take on human flesh and die for us, he was able to give. He had received so much from the wealth of God's love. He said, I love you. And then he asked the judge, he said, can I get down and give her a hug? And he embraced the woman who had murdered his brother, just held her close, and she wept on his arms. And just faintly, you could hear what he whispered in her ear. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And he said the most incomprehensible thing I had ever heard. I'm here for you. You want a love like you have been loved, it might cost you something. And that's okay. You have enough to give. Christ has given it to you. Father, I pray that we would wrestle with the intensity of the humanity of Jesus Christ. That we would know that we are loved because he became human. That it is not a weakness, but a strength that he is redeeming us to be like him to a place of no temptation and no sin and no death that we can live under the machinations of Satan in this world fearless because of what Jesus has done in his body by dying and rising again. Let us live in gratitude and hope and courage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.